Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Coming up on this week's show, why your granddad might want to come out of retirement. Rumours of the next big Resident Evil remake. And the story of the British home computer wars with Tony Saint. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 220, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And can I just say how much I miss you guys? I can't believe I haven't seen you for like two weeks now, because again... We are recording this week's show, of course, remotely. I think it went all right last week, though, judging by the reaction. Yeah, some people seem to really like it. And, you know, um, they said Joe was a slightly bit echoey. Yeah, I've I've tried to sort that. So I've moved from the kitchen to the spare room, uh, which does mean I'm sat on the floor right now behind the couch. But... Hopefully that will help. (laughs) (laughs) The things you do for this podcast, Joe. Absolutely. My back's in bits. (laughs) (laughs) We did have people commenting going, uh, yeah, all sounding good, guys, but you know, how big is Joe's kitchen? It sounds cavernous. You've actually moved into the west wing of your house. Yeah, exactly. Can can I just say, it it is a big kitchen, but it's because it's a kitchen diner. (laughs) It's it's, it's because you're a rocker. They think you're like Ozzy Osbourne in this kind (laughs) of huge. It's He's actually on a, on a lilo in his swimming pool at the moment. Yeah, isn't he? actually, really. <laughs> so uh, this week, again, doing the show remotely, but we've got some really good stories to talk about. I think we're getting the hang of this now. And we are going to bring you an incredible guest on the show, just like we do every week on the Retro Hour podcast. Now, Ravi, you probably watched this when it was on. Um, probably, it's actually over 10 years ago now. Micro Men. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. It was a really good, like, dramatization of the... Um, home computer wars in the uk and really unique because you know like clive sinclair was a really interesting character and he had his a c5 and stuff and you know it really takes you back to that time and it was actually pretty well acted for you know one of these dramatizations uh i've seen other ones that have, have not been as good as microman i think it i think it's at the top of these kind of category and it's become a bit of a cult classic in the 11 years since it was on TV over here in the UK, probably because there's a, a dodgy upload of it on YouTube. <laughs> I think it's quite a lot of views. But today, we're going to be joined by the writer of Micro Men, Tony Saint. Now, he's actually an award-winning screenwriter for television, a really long career behind him. He's not much of a technologist, but he found this story really interesting. And obviously, to write Micro Men, he had to research the topic really in depth. So today, we're going to get the story behind how Micro Man, if, you, if you've seen it before, this is going to be really interesting, a bit of a behind-the-scenes look about how that docudrama came together, but also a bit more of a general chat about the early 80s home computer wars here in Britain, which really was centred around Sinclair versus Acorn. And it is, you know, the fact that it was made into a movie for television should tell you everything you need to know, that it's actually a story that's full of drama, full of twists and turns and uh, unexpected events. So this is a really interesting one, the story of Micro Men and the British home computer wars with Tony Saint. He's going to be our guest on the show in around 15 minutes from now. 
Now, before we get into the news stories this week, let's just give a huge shout to the team at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester, which, you know, we've been there lots of times over the years. It's a fabulous place, but unfortunately, like a lot of people at the moment, it's been quite badly affected by the current crisis and they need a bit of help right now. Well, they're kind of funded by people turning up paying and you know playing on these machines and having the place active and of course it's just sitting empty at the moment so they need some funds to kind of keep them going and it's a really fantastic place it's um it's really focused on kind of the community and just like a lovely little club when you turn up and they've got all these amazing machines including some of the old vr machines which are fantastic so they're trying to raise thirty thousand pounds to kind of help them keep going and you know we really don't want to see this place shut down because um me and dan absolutely love this place we need to take joe someday yeah, yeah definitely it, it is an incredible place and i think you summed it up perfectly there the fact that when you go it kind of feels a bit like a a cozy like users group doesn't it like you know all familiar faces there and you know they've got the most incredible layout and they've got i mean if, if you've not been there before you've kind of got the main area where there's just machines set up all around the room you go in the back there's an arcade section you've got the old virtuality vr machines from the early 90s and then there's another section that's just dedicated to software and pretty much any bit of software that you can ever imagine they've probably got about four or five copies of it on on the shelves in there they've done such a good job of not only preserving it all but displaying it all as well and like you said it would be an absolute tragedy if that place wasn't around anymore so they have got a just giving page at the moment obviously we appreciate the time so hard for everybody right now but um it is definitely a worthwhile cause so i'll link that up in our show notes at the retrohour.com now, of course, we're all at home at the moment. I don't know about you guys, but I do, I do see lots of people on social media saying, oh, I'm climbing the walls now. I've played all my games. I've watched everything on Netflix. If you need something to entertain you and stimulate your mind a little bit, have a look at this. Now, this week's show is brought to you by our friends at the incredible Retro Gamer magazine. Now, I think I speak for you guys as well. I've been a reader of Retro Gamer for as long as I can remember now. Oh, it's an awesome magazine. You know, I've got so many on my shelf and this edition is fantastic. They, they've got regular columnists in there that are really funny. And Ian Lee, uh, a lot of people may know him from like Fun Bandits. He, he does a comment, a column at the moment. And in it, he's talking about how he's never actually completed a video game. You know, he's always tried to complete them, but never, never put the... Well, he's put the effort in, but he's never got to that stage. Which I was reading that column as well the other day, and I thought, I was trying to think back to how many games I've actually completed. And if I'm honest, I could probably count them on one hand. What about <laughs> oh, you, that's Joe? Disa- that's disappointing. <laughs> no, <it's... laughs> I know Joe's probably completed more games in a weekend than I've done in my entire life, to be fair. Oh, uh, maybe. I do, I, I'm a bit of a completionist sometimes, so I at least like to kind of finish the main story in games. So, you know, but I, it, it is funny to read when people, you know, they play so many games and stuff, like sometimes they just don't get the chance to finish them. Well, this week's issue is also kind of talking about the Mega Drive versus SNES and the, the great 16-bit war, which was Sega versus Nintendo. And they're talking here about the strategies that they had. So Club Nintendo was actually a really big thing where they were trying to get kids engaged and, you know, have it like a fan club and a community. But also whilst that was going on, they had Sega with their pirate TV advertising that was going on MTV, which is trying to get a little bit of the kind of older crowd. So they have a bit of a comparison. And then they have a history of Euridium, which is an absolutely fantastic title. And and a great little article about um, how, you know, Craft Gold, uh, they created it on the C64. And they they believed that it couldn't be converted to the ZX Spectrum until uh, Dominic Robinson... Uh, created a demo and that completely changed their mind so 
looking at all stages of Iridium and it's just fantastic. Now, Retro Gamer is, of course, the only high street magazine dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming. And that's what you get every month, exclusive access to developers giving you behind-the-scenes stories and telling you about those systems that you grew up playing in those video games as well, revisiting those game libraries with expert insight, and you uncover fascinating new facts about those games from your childhood. Now, I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this has at least read an issue of Retro Gamer before. But listen, now's a perfect time to check it out. Future Publishing's Spring sale is on now, so that means you can get up to 83% off the price and get the copies delivered straight to your door. So that means we've got an exclusive offer for you right now. You can get five issues of Retro Gamer magazine for just £5. Normally, that will cost you 25 quid in the shop, so that is a huge saving. And the loads of other magazines you can choose from as well, including Official PlayStation, Edge or PC Gamer, all five for £5. So if you want to claim this right now, and of course, you'll be really helping out our podcast by doing this, all you have to do is head to this website, open a new tab in your browser right now, and go to myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash spring. Two zero nine. So that's my favourite magazines.co.uk forward slash spring two zero nine. And I'll of course put that in our show notes as well. Thanks to Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Now, of course, at the moment, we're all kind of getting used to the new way of living, the new normal. But there are things that keep cropping up in the news that are, uh, shall we say, somewhat surprising. It turns out there is actually quite a big demand for. COBOL programmers right now. Now, for people that might not know, I'm talking about Joe here, Ravi. Explain what COBOL is. <laughs> yeah, so COBOL stands for Common Business Orientated Language, and it was basically a language that was developed in 1959. And it's an old, old computer language that was used to program all the business systems. Now, at the moment with the pandemic going on, there's need for healthcare workers, and there's also a need for welfare systems. So uh, a lot of people are out of work, so they're all applying for welfare. Now, it happens that the American welfare system is based on COBOL and these old mainframe systems. But there's a real issue. Um, and the issue is at the moment that um, there's 60 million lines of COBOL uh, code in use at the moment. And they haven't taught it at the university since the 80s. So yeah. they've got no one to come in and help kind of program this stuff. And I was looking further into it, and I actually couldn't believe it, that you've got this really old programming language and 43% of banking systems are built on it and 95% of ATM swipes rely on COBOL code as well. So any COBOL experts, you need to go and help out the American um, uh, system here. So anybody who learned how to do it in the 50s (laughs) needs to get involved. You know, I'm thinking, I'm sure my mum used to program in COBOL. And she's not doing anything. She's just sitting in the back garden, sipping Prosecco at the moment in the sunshine. <laughs> she could be making herself. You, I'm going to get on the phone after this. It well, does make you think, though. Because, I mean, all these kids are at, like, you know, college and uni, probably doing stuff like uh, Python and JavaScript. They need to get on the case with COBOL. They could earn a fortune. Well, well, here they're saying, you know, that these are 40-year-old mainframes and they're yeah. processing, like, thousands upon thousands of claims and they're just being overloaded. They can't, they can't deal with it. They're used to a slow kind of pace and a, a steady stream. 
you know, we've talked about it on the show before, the fact that a lot of these kind of, they call them legacy systems are still running. I think one of the most concerning ones was the uh, the nuclear missiles that are actually still running on eight-inch floppy disks from yeah. the 1960s. So uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that we've still got COBOL mainframes doing important work. But yeah, if you do know anyone who knows COBOL, get them on the case as work that needs to be done. So we'll put a link to that and all the other stories that we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, there are lots of other brilliant retro gaming podcasts out there as well, including our great mate, at Retro Asylum Podcast. I think they've been going longer than any other UK retro gaming podcast. And last week, they gave us a really nice shout on their show. Yeah, they did, because uh, we're running a patron at the moment, and they kind of gave us a lovely shout, but also, oh, they're doing something fantastic. This is really funny. Um, You know, at the moment, you're kind of probably sitting at home doing a lot of lawn mowing and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah, I am. (laughs) Yeah, but now you can do it on your Spectrum Next. So (laughs) there's a great game which is called Advanced Lawnmower Simulator, and this was actually a prank that was released in um, April 1988 for Your Sinclair by Duncan McDonald, and uh, he he claimed to be called Gardensoft. (laughs) That was his uh, kind of name, and it it wasn't software, it was grassware. So all this is is a kind of simulator of you mowing a lawn but what retro asylum have done and uh dean swain has actually coded a new version of it for the spectrum next so this is 32 years later garden softer in association with retro asylum and you can download the full title off their google drive we'll provide a link and they've kind of added the extra extra capabilities of the spectrum next so there's a bit more color in there it's uh it's not got so much color clash but it's still essentially a lawn mowing simulator <laughs> you know what i'm thinking would be incredible you know like he got the um the logo turtle on the bbc micro if you could help look like a real lawnmower up to your spectrum next and run this and it could do the garden for you you see, that's what I actually thought it was going to be. <laughs> well, well, do you remember that there was a lot of like joke simulators that came out? I remember there was Brick Simulator, and yeah. then there was a few sensible software ones like Sensible Train Spotting. <laughs> it's like all of these really weird cult kind of strange remakes. And it's good that you know to get new software for the um, the Spectrum Next as well, especially when it's got that kind of legacy behind it. You know that was a bit of a prank back in the day. That so, uh, yeah, good work. The guys from Retro Asylum, of course, we'll link that up in our show notes too. Now, Joe, you've been spending your time in isolation, completing a game over and over. How many times have you completed the new version of Resident Evil Three in the last week? I think last night was my seventh completion <laughs> of it, wow. uh, which has also meant I've platinumed the game now. So. Every single achievement, every single in-game reward as well. So I absolutely adore Resident Evil games. And I've been absolutely loving the Resident Evil 3 remake and obviously the Resident Evil 2 remake last year. Last year. So I am thrilled and at the same time a little bit torn about the decision by Capcom that they have announced that they are remaking Resident Evil 4 with a release date of 2022, uh, which I'm really, really excited about. But like I say, I'm a little bit torn as well because of... It's only 16 years old, so like I don't feel like it quite needs the remake like the other two did because they were like 22 years old. Like I don't know, like at what point do you start remaking it? But I am excited about it, and it's cool that they are. You know, they you know they've been really successful with the remakes. You know, they sold like six million copies of Resident Evil Two. Uh, Resident Evil Three is not doing quite as well, but they're saying they think it's due to the you know the global pandemic. But yeah, really excited about it. And they've got the same people who you know developed, helped develop number two and number three remakes and also the Devil May Cry 5 release as well. So it's the same team behind all of them. 
And they've also got the blessing from the original director of Resident Evil 4, Sinji Makani, I think his name was. And they offered him to direct the remake as well, but he's he's graciously turned it down and said, you know, the guys who've worked on number two and three can do it. So I'm really excited about it. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but how the current Resident Evil games kind of play that over the shoulder, you know, third person look. Resident Evil 4 was kind of the first one to do that. Oh, okay. And kind and kind of like invented that kind of style of gameplay back in like 2005. Uh, well, not invented it, but, you know, it was kind of like the pioneering game of it. So it's a bit like, does it need remaking? Because it's already like, Guarded as such a perfect game anyway, if that makes sense. Had they skipped Code Veronica then? Because wasn't that yeah. before it? Yeah, so Code Veronica was kind of like the unofficial version of Resident Evil 3 because that was always meant to be Resident Evil 3. And then Resident Evil 3 was just going to be Resident Evil Nemesis. But then it turned out in their contracts with Sony that they had to put the first three main releases, main title releases on PlayStation. So Code Veronica, which was for the Dreamcast, just became yeah. Code Veronica rather than Resident Evil 3. So the rumor was up until about two, literally two, three days ago that Code Veronica was going to get remade for this, you know, 2022 release. But it's all coming out that it's actually going to be Resident Evil 4. Now, personally, I feel like Resident Evil Code Veronica would have been the natural progression, like you've just said, because that's still played in like the fixed, well, not quite fixed camera, but you know, like the tank controls, like the old school 90s style. Like, yeah. So that just felt like the natural progression for me, but they've skipped it, like you're saying, they're going straight to number four. For me, this looks like. Um... Kind of like the Doom remakes, like, like they're that high quality. And interestingly, I saw that they added a, a, an online game mode on a Resident Evil 3 as well. Yeah, so with Resident Evil 3, you actually get two games in one. You get Resident Evil 3 and Resident Evil Resistance, which is like a completely separate game, but it's completely online. But it uses all the game assets from um, Resident Evil 2 and 3, so you can get all the weapons and stuff like that for the online for that. So that's, it's pretty cool. It's a little little glitchy because it's all online and, you know, you run off one person's server. Uh, so I'm hoping they fix that up. But, yeah, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray that, you know, this Resident Evil 4 is just as good as it is as number two and three for the remakes because of, you know, Resident Evil 4 was such a good game anyway. And, you know, two and three were amazing games, but the remakes have been phenomenal. So I hope they do, you know, do, do it justice. And I need to see Code Veronica. I, I play that so much on the Dreamcast. I'd love to get a new version of that again. Yeah, I, I'd really, uh, you know, I'm not, I, Code Veronica, I didn't actually play it through until a couple of years ago because mm. I didn't, didn't have a Dreamcast when I was a kid. And I didn't play it until a couple of years ago and I really enjoyed it. So I, I would have liked to have seen, you know, the Code Veronica remake over the number four remake and then po- possibly seen the four remake after that. But yeah, they're going straight forward. So who knows, we might still get the Code Veronica remake if, if uh, Resident Evil 4 remake's just as successful as the other two remakes. Put that pressure on, Joe. Keep those tweets. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to definitely keep it going. Making people buy it. I was evil free. <laughs> now, actually, we're a bit excited about this weekend because we're going to be doing um, a little party on Sunday night, aren't we, with our uh, patrons? Going to be having our first uh, patrons-only hangout on uh, Sunday evening. So um, if you have backed us on Patreon, obviously, like we said at the start of the show, we appreciate the times are a little bit hard for everybody right now, but we do massively appreciate your support. We've been putting a few little exclusives up there, and we've been putting a few of the episodes out early, a few little bonus podcasts and live panels that we've done. And if you are around on Sunday night and you are a Patreon of ours, it would be great to get you on there. I think the plan is, what, just literally Sunday night, 8 o'clock, we're going to crack open a couple of beers and just chat about retro games for an hour or two you know yeah yeah you guys we, we should try and find some old photos of like our, our, our retro setups or like uh, us when we were younger with some dodgy technology <laughs> or something that would be, be good fun <laughs> that'd be good fun i don't know if i'll be able to fish them out from my mums of everything that's going on but i'm going to sit in my games room and i'll oh, uh, nice. sh- yeah. show off a couple of things 
you know, room, try and room be a tour. Bit pig-headed. Yeah, a bit, a bit, <laughs> bit of a room tour, maybe. <laughs> and then, then maybe a kitchen as well if we've got like a spare hour or two. To yeah, so people can see how big it really is. <laughs> the labyrinth. <laughs> well, of course, the reason that we do have a Patreon is because even though we are doing this remotely this week, this is not the way we prefer to do the show. We're actually trying to get a fun together to uh, build our own studio because usually we do the podcast in the studio that I'm in on my own at the moment, uh, but we want to get our own built so we can do more of the show. You know, we can do uh, pretty much we've got access to studio 24 hours a day it's going to mean that we can get a lot more flexibility with guests we can create more content for you video we want to do as well we've got some big plans for the future so uh, thank you so much for everybody who supported us on patreon of course we are getting through as many shouts as we can each week and getting you guys in the hall of fame this week we want to say a big thank you to gary broadhead scott brian frazier andrew lee ian wilkinson and gary hever who all made donations into our Patreon, and you can do the same. You'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. Right, we'll have more news for you on next week's show, and next we are going to get the story of the British home computer wars and that incredible docudrama, Micro Men, with this week's special guest, Tony Saint. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now this week we're going to be joined by Tony Sane. Now Tony is an award-winning screenwriter for television and the man who was a writer on one of my all-time favourite dramas, Micro Men, which was a brilliant dramatisation of the early 80s home computer wars here in Britain. So let's welcome him onto the show. Welcome to the Retro Hour, Tony Saint. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, before we get into the um, story of Microman, which I, I must say I've probably watched more times than I should probably admit, <laughs> it's one of my all-time favourites. I know before that you were working on the the Long Walk to Finchley, which is about Margaret Thatcher right. in the years before she became Prime Minister. So, I mean, tell us a bit about your kind of background and other work that we might know you for. Well, I'm a, I'm what I'd call a jobbing screenwriter, so I kind of take the work where it where it comes, but. Um, I've been quite lucky since I started doing this uh, that I've had a, you know I've had a nice variety of things to uh, to work on and so so the Micro Men and, and the Mr. Thatcher film were both examples of the uh, uh, BBC Four single dramas that were that they don't do anymore unfortunately because they were a great kind of school for learning uh, you know for, for 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 learning the craft if you like mm-hmm. um, I did three of them actually in total so I did so I did the Thatcher film which was uh, which is which was a great uh, a great success at the time and then Andrea Riseborough played um, Margaret Thatcher to create a claim I did a little film about the MP's expenses scandal as well which was quite a lot of fun to do um, and uh, and then subsequently onto that, I moved on to probably what you call some bigger projects. I worked on a big show for Sky and HBO called Strike Back, which was a complete antithesis of something like Micro Men, which is, as we'll come to, made for about 50p. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and more recently, um, I've been working on, I've been working on uh, the new television version of Das Boat, which I did the first series of, which was on Sky Atlantic um, in the UK and in Germany, where it was produced, uh, which has been a great experience and a, re- and a, and a, and a really um, exciting show to work on. I'm doing another series of that at the moment, and as ever, looking for any any other opportunities. Um, 
that that might come my way. But it's you know it's one of these things that um, you know I used to do a different job. I used to I used to work for the Home Office before I right. became a screenwriter. So I didn't really like that so much. So I'm one of these guys who thanks his lucky stars every day that he's not doing that anymore, and it gets gets a, gets a, gets away with making a living by coming up with daft stories. Is the way I like to think of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, interestingly, you know, is you're quite unique in terms of guests that we have on this podcast because you're not actually much of a technologist yourself, are you? I'm a self-declared ignoramus when it comes to this <laughs> stuff. So, you know, as you say, I... I have a little whiff of imposter syndrome around me being on your show, but I'll do my best. But yeah, when it comes to the actual, the actual technical side of it, yeah, I am, I am completely devoid of any knowledge, really. And I, and uh, I, in a way, I suppose I embody what what I think of as this. I know there was a magazine called Sinclair User, which was referred to in, in Microman, but I am a sort of the classic Sinclair user, and I know absolutely nothing about what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just the I'm, I'm the pure end user when it comes to this kind of machinery. So. Um, and the very sophisticated tech that you and I are talking on today because of the current circumstances is a case in point. You know, you well, set we, it up and I'm go, wow, that's amazing. Well, I have no idea how it works. <laughs> we don't need to know, as long as it works. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, going back to that kind of era, the, the golden age of home computing, yeah. if you like. I mean, did you own a computer or a console yourself as a kid or, or use them? No, I mean, I was very much the, I was very much one of the kids who uh, who was desperate to get one but never did. I, I don't know what, I don't know why it was. My parents... Um, just never quite got around to getting me one. So I used to often go around to a mate, especially in the summer holidays. I remember this a lot because I was, I guess I was sort of 12, 13, 14 across this period. Spend the whole day at my mate Ian Tarkin's house playing football manager was the game I remember most vividly. Yeah. On the spectrum, I think it must have been because it was colours, yeah. And you'd set it up, wouldn't you? And then, the, and then I used to, the bit where I used to play the game between you changing your team and whatever it was. And they had these fantastically sort of basic graphics of a football match. And yet, bizarrely enough, it was always incredibly exciting because you, you, you sort of didn't know the result, obviously, being a football manager. And I, I remember that very vividly. And, then, and the noise the bloody thing used to make when you put the cassette in. Uh, that may have been the reason my parents never got one. Perhaps it was just, just because they couldn't stand that sound, which I, in hindsight, I completely understand. That sort of. um, <laughs> but it, it was always just slightly out of reach. And, you know, it's not, I, it, I, I'm not quite sure why that, why that was. I think I always, probably because I had friends who had them, it was never top of my kind of wish list at Christmas or birthdays. I do remember one thing we had in the house was, was we had what we called the TV game, which I suppose was Pong is what it's known as these days. Yeah. We used to have that, and, and that was probably 77 or something. My parents got us that, and we thought that was amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was, I was sort of at the right age at the right time to really kind of be in there. I suppose I was right in the sort of um, the sights of these people, you know, by the time. They, you know, one of the interesting things about the, about the film, which we'll talk about this, is how, how it morphed, obviously, from being one kind of phenomenon into another kind of phenomenon because it became, it became it was a technical phenomenon that turned into a kind of entertainment phenomenon, wasn't it, really? And yeah. the whole games exploded. And so I was at that age where I was sort of, as I say, right in the crosshairs of that, although I never actually had the chance to own one. And it's, you know, I don't dwell on that, Dan. I mean, it's just one of those <laughs> things that, you know, I wake up in the night wishing I had a spectrum. You know? It's never I, too late. And I'll tell you what, I wish I had one now because it'd be worth quite a lot of money, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, actually, isn't it? The things that we, we threw out back in the days mm. now uh, suddenly become valuable antiques all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, that ZX80, that brick thing, I mean, it's, it's hilarious that that's worth, so they're, they're so valuable now. Even at the time, they looked like, they looked pretty tatty at the time, I thought. Anyway. Well, well let's talk about Micromanks. And originally that was called um, Syntax Era was the original name for it, I read. How did you get right, on board yeah. with the project and what kind of attracted you to, to work on it? I mean, it's not a, that, that part of the story is fairly straightforward. I mean, I was approached. I, I, I think the, um, 
it was on the back of having written the film about Margaret Thatcher, which, which like Microman, the thing they both have in common, I think, is they both take a sort of tongue-in-cheek approach to you know a historical period and, and a historical story. Perhaps more so with the Mrs. Thatcher story that you think you you have an understanding of this person and their and their life, and it was a great opportunity to write a film that showed you a different side to their history and a different side to their character, or or made made the audience look at it from a slightly different perspective. But I think the kind of comic element to that was was what appealed to the producers in, in approaching me about doing Clive St. Clair, which I think was right. I think the, the the way to do it somehow because of the sort of slightly kind of there's something sort of quite homely about the British computer industry that that it, that it's not IBM, isn't it? It's it felt small and a bit more parochial, and in a way that sort of lent itself to a kind of lighter approach, I think. So so I was approached about it, and as you say, the the the, the title at the time was Syntax Era, which I which wasn't my idea. I didn't I didn't I didn't you know that was the the title that was attached to the project, and I think it was a little bit too techy a title. That it, it, you know, for, to my taste, I, I, I'm glad we changed it. You know, I, I, I was obviously, you know, I obviously responded to that because of the age I'd been at the time. I responded to that 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 idea, that world, that story, because I kind of implicitly understood the 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 impact those machines had had. Um, and uh, but also, I think what really what what really hit home with me was, as I said earlier, what what a scriptwriter is looking for, which is a great sort of central dynamic to the story. And this story about Clive Sinclair and and Chris Curry, the the mentor and the protege who fall out, who go their own ways, who are basically constantly being pushed by their rivalry into uh, ultimately into disaster, is such a great kind of arc. You couldn't you couldn't you can wish for anything more to get your teeth into as a dramatist, really. So so those are the key things. And obviously, I saw in, you know particularly in Clive Sinclair's. I don't know much about Chris Curry before that. But particularly in Clive Sinclair, you, again, as with Mrs. Thatcher, you're sort of you're sort of taking an iconic figure on and kind of trying to get under their skin a bit, you know. And and in a way, I suppose, I mean, I'm, Micromen is certainly guilty. Guilty is the right word, but it certainly points up some of the absurdities of Sir Clive's character, as well as hopefully some of the positive sides to him as well. But I think that those are the sort of elements that that kind of appeal to me. So it's sort of slightly um, a slightly tongue in cheek kind of um, irreverent take. On you know what we what we look back on now is a bit of a British institution, but I think there's a, there's always there's always a little bit more to tell. And one of the one of the one of the interests in doing the show, I think, was trying to get to the get into that rivalry and get into that. It's it's almost a Shakespearean story if you think about yeah. it. I mean, it has yeah. that kind of scale of, of of emotion and as I said, the rivalry and that relationship fracturing. And then actually, I mean, one of the scenes I I, I did I had a quick look at the show again before talking to you. One of the scenes I like the best is actually the final scene that the two men have in the pub at the end, because being able to sort of draw some poignancy out of it as well, I think was uh, was something that, that that I was hoping to do, and um, and I, that that scene always makes me kind of smile, and, and there's a gentleness to it which I which I which I like too, you know. Yeah, like they, they got through the the battle zone and the friends again at the end, almost. Yeah, yeah and I think they've both yeah. paid they both paid the the price, haven't they? I, I think that one of the fascinating things about about the story as we tell it that I honed in on was very much the idea, as I said, there's this fundamental rivalry between them. But what's so fascinating is that the seeds of their destruction in, in both men's cases were in trying to emulate the other. And I found that so interesting about it, mm. you know. So as as you know, as you'll know, Acorn would were it became obsessed with trying to produce a machine that was basically for the common man. Uh, that was something equivalent to what Sinclair was doing, where Sinclair was desperate to be taken seriously by the computer hierarchy, if you like, you know. And so he produced the, I think it was the QL, wasn't it? The quantum yes. 
that was the machine that basically proved to be his downfall. They actually departed from their true path, if you like, again, motivated by their rivalry. And that was what brought them down as almost, I mean, you could argue it's a sort of Greek tragedy of sorts, you know, hubris and nemesis striking you at the end. And I think that was a lovely, there's a lovely symmetry to that in the story, which makes it, which made it a very compelling story to want to write. Well, were you aware of this kind of rivalry going into this then, or was that kind of a narrative that developed? And I I thought it was really interesting that it focused on that. And I think it was definitely the right thing to do rather than focusing so much on the companies and the technology. It was more of a personal story. Yeah. I mean, I, um, to be honest with you, I didn't, before I was approached about the show, I didn't know anything about the rivalry. I didn't know anything about the Baron of Beef incident. Uh, Shocking violence. Shocking violence. Um, Uh, where where Chris where Claire Sinclair attacks Chris Curry and there's a punch up in the pub which which was actually the, the, the that was the starting point for I think when I got sent the material that was the first thing it, it led to a fight in a pub in Cambridge I thought right well, I like the sound of this this sounds great fun um, and if you go back from there and you see what what led to that you know that becomes a, that was a great kind of in a sense that's the crescendo of the whole piece is where they have this slightly preposterous punch up in this pub. But I didn't know much about the rivalry. I didn't. I didn't really know a lot about Acorn Computers, to be honest with you. And I don't know if I, I. I don't know if I'd had any any dealings with BBC Computers at the school I went to in, in Newcastle, where I grew up. I had no recollection of that. Um, so that was all new to me. Um, uh, but I think I just yes, I just instinctively kind of kind of reacted to that to that central premise. And again, I think that I think that there's something about the punch up in the pub, which is so quintessentially British. And sort of, you know, amusing in its own right. I mean, you know, sort of think if it was, I know there's these shows on Netflix and, and other American shows about computer computer startups and everything is everything is dialed up to 11. And, you know, if there was going to be a fight in one of those shows, it would probably end up with guns, you know, guns being fired at people. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in a British version, it's like a rolled up newspaper hitting someone over the head. And I rather, I rather like that sort of kind of. Like fisticuffs, isn't it? Yes, we're pathetic, I think is the right word, isn't it? That's sort of kind of like very, very English kind of understatement. Um, But the stakes, but having said that, the stakes for the characters are just as high, I think, as they are in any of those American dramas because these guys lost everything. And I think that's, um, you know, that's, that's the, and then you, and you know, as the, as Herman Hauser character says in the, in, in the, in the, in the, in the film, you know, that what's great about the people who work in that is, is they're very smart people and they, and they'll find something else. And, I, it was. I think it was in the script, as I remember. But obviously, I don't. I didn't. I didn't know the details. But it's in the script that, that as he says that line behind him, there's some early kind of ideas about the arm chip, which was this chip, wasn't it, that went on to become ubiquitous that these guys at Acorn developed. Is that ARM chip? Every, arm chip? Is that what it's called? Yeah, arm chip. Yeah, it's in every phone in the world now, isn't it? And everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, um, uh, so I, those, those. You know, the idea of the show is the, the great thing about that story as well is it. It obviously picks up Clive Sinclair from his his previous existence as, as Sinclair Radionics and this guy who was the kind of inventor that he talks about. You know, the the, the you know talk he talks at the end of the film about about the British inventor being the man who scuttles to his shed with this great idea that's going to change the world. The Clive Sinclair who kind of that's my sense of how he started out in a way and then he became the Clive Sinclair that we all knew in this heyday but for for him and the other characters the story doesn't really end with the end of the film it's just that's just a snapshot and then for the for the for the the Steve Ferbers and the Sophie Wilsons of this world of course the story almost just begins there that's the beginning of their story it has it has a long way and, and much greater heights to go to so and I thought that Alexander Armstrong and Martin Freeman were perfect in the roles as well I mean how were they chosen for it then? Yeah, we you go through a casting uh, system. I mean, you, you know, when you do a show like this, you hire a casting director, and various options are, um, are put up there. And I, I mean, obviously at the time, Martin Freeman 
I guess he must have been between jobs because I mean he kind of he's gone on to do a few you know he, he'd finished the office then I guess so and I don't know whether he I don't know whether he'd been cast as the Hobbit at that point I can't remember but obviously it was you know it turned out to be quite a coup to have him in the film bearing in mind what he's gone on to do since and Alexander Armstrong was a, was a was a casting director's idea which I thought and I I was always a huge fan of of, his, of Armstrong and Miller and also he's actually like a lot of great you know sketch duos they're actually very very good actors because. You sort of have to be because you, you've got to inhabit a lot of different roles, you know. And I was thinking people like Mel Smith from Nine, Not Nine O'Clock News and, and Griffiths Jones are actually very good actors as well as being very good comedians. And I thought he was I thought he was a great idea. And of course, he has that wonderful comic timing, which just is a joy to write for. Uh, and coming back to that final scene, I mean, again, I just watched it recently. And, and that final line Clive has where he says to Chris Curry, you know, I'm. I'm thinking about designing a flying car. Yeah. The way he says flying car, yeah, it just always cracks me up. But that's, you know, it, that's, that's a great skill to have. And his, his comic timing is magnificent. And, uh, and in, a, in a way, I regret that he doesn't do more acting now. He's, sort of, he's, now, he's now he's Mr. Game Show host. I think he's a bit of a, that's a bit of a loss to the nation, personally. But yes, I mean, he, he pulled it off really well. And I think, obviously, you know, we cast him for the comic potential. You know, I mean, obviously, with Clive Sinclair, there was a, there was a I think I, I won't, I, I won't go to hell for saying this. There's a certain degree of pomposity there, I think, that mm-hmm. that you want to kind of exploit. And I think he did a very good, very good job of that. And there's a couple of particular scenes where he, where he's, uh, yeah, he's gloriously funny. I think it's very funny. The scene, the scene again, the scene where he comes past um, Chris Curry on his C5 in the middle of the night. That always makes me laugh. That always makes me. Laugh. Well, I mean, when you were researching the characters, I mean, how did you go about that? Did you actually meet Chris Curry or Clive Sinclair when writing well, or, or people that knew them or what? Well, there's, now there's a story. Um, I was due to meet Clive Sinclair. It's one of my regrets. It didn't happen, unfortunately, for personal reasons. Um, the producers did go and meet him and I was, I was due to go, but I couldn't, unfortunately, because of a, um, because of a bereavement. So I missed that opportunity and I missed the opportunity to be in his, uh, to be in his flat on top of Frog Square, so I, 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 I was, I, I didn't get the chance to meet him, but I did meet, uh, I did meet Chris Curry. I met Chris Curry. Uh, I mean, we're ten years on now, so I can probably tell him. I met Chris Curry during the shoot because he, when he, when he read the script, he was a little bit concerned, and he wanted to set a few things straight. So I met him. At the, uh, that was the context in which I met him. What he didn't know at the time was that actually half the show had been shot by that point. So uh, some of his concerns were already in the can, as it were. Uh, so I, so I, but I had met Steve Ferber. Uh, we met, I met, I met him at Manchester over a Chinese meal, which was great, and I got a lot of insight. And he was very supportive of the whole thing. I think he loved the project, and he was very complimentary about it after we, after he'd seen it, because he, because he very kindly said, and, I, and this was very much one of my hopes, that it really, really for him caught the spirit of the time. You know that kind of uh, that very sort of um, happy-go-lucky sort of doing it by the seat of your pants atmosphere that we create in the middle of the show when they're trying to build the spec for the BBC computer. He said that for him just sent him reeling back in time to what it was actually like, which was, which is great to hear because you think you've really captured the essence of something when you hear that. I think one of my other regret was I never got to meet Herman Hauser because I think I would have just enjoyed meeting him, but that didn't happen. So in terms of the, in terms of the actual personnel, I met one or two of them. Yeah. But sometimes as a screenwriter, it's sometimes better to keep your distance, if I'm honest with you, because, um, you know, they can't get to you that way. Then, you know what I, mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we often find when we do this show, you know, we'll talk to different people who work for the same company and at the same time. And you often get conflicting accounts mm-hmm. of what happened and memories kind of fade or play tricks. Was it much of that then that you had to kind of get together into one like kind of story and yeah, I mean, it's work? interesting. I, I don't know if you've seen I, I, I only picked this up because because I, I, I YouTubed. 
I did I did a naughty thing and I watched the, I watched a bit of it on YouTube the other week. But I noticed that there's actually a film that's now available of Ferber and Chris Curry and Herman Hauser watching the film. Yes. Commenting on it as they go. And and it's very interesting that that sometimes they do that in the course of the YouTube thing. They're, one of them will say, you know, oh, I don't remember that. The other will say, oh, that, that definitely happened. That definitely happened. So I think that's just, that's just the, uh, um, that's the vagaries of time, isn't it? I mean, I think largely speaking, most of the research material came from the two or three books that I had that followed the, that followed the course quite. I mean, one of them was a bit, more, bit too technical for me, but a couple of them were just very good books about the history and the time. And I did a, you know, I did a bit of trawling through newspapers and digging out some material. I mean, from I mean, it's a while ago now, so I don't remember exactly how the how all the research was done. But I mean, you know, I look at it now, and from what I from what I can see from the general comments on it, it's reasonably. It seems to have stood the test in terms of in terms of the the the, the story stands up to pretty much what it was like. We've taken a few liberties, unquestionably. We took and we some some there's some dramatic license there. But the fund the fundamentals of it, I think, I think were true to the true to the spirit of the of the story and and the spirit of the times and. Um, I mean, it says in the film at some point that, that Herman Hauser was doing a PhD in oxidization. Now, I must have got that from somewhere because I wouldn't have put that in. But then apparently he wasn't doing a PhD in oxidization. That's completely wrong. So right. I <laughs> put my hand up to that one. But most of the time, I think we got the kind of we got the details quite right. And I, there were people on the show, on the production side, who were much more technically savvy than me. And I think they had a they had a clearer understanding of of some of the details about um, uh, about the the actual sort of the technical side of the story. Uh, but what I have learned from this film is that when you write something about in this kind of area, if you don't get your facts right, people let you know about it. I mean, there's some remarkably remarkable comments about the film. I remember one guy had posted a comment somewhere saying, um, yeah, I really enjoyed the film, but that cabling outside the office in scene whatever is clearly 10 years out of date. And I thought, wow, this guy is watching the show <laughs> looking at the cabling. I mean, that's impressive. You know? Well, talking about moments in there that were kind of, you know, exaggerated slightly to make them more dramatic. I thought there were some great moments there, for example, when uh, Herman was cutting the wire like a, a bomb disposal expert might do as the BBC are walking up the stairs. I mean, I imagine, you know, moments like that were kind of played for the dramatic side of it, but I, I thought they did really add to the story. Well, you would think so. In actual fact, I mean, that's, that's a case in point. That that was actually much nearer to the truth than you might think. Apparently, that they really were down to the wire, and the BBC guys were coming up the stairs, and they still hadn't got the thing working. And there was some, again, I mean, I struggled to really understand the kind of the, the exact details of what was going on. So I, so I sort of basically, you know, wrote it as as a kind of like as you said, like a sort of bomb disposal sequence. But there was effectively a kind of moment where Herman had to do something equivalent to that, and it literally was, these guys are coming up the stairs. If we don't get this thing working. We're, we are screwed and what are we going to do let's try this bang and the, and the bloody thing came to life so an actual fact that, that from what i and again i think if you refer to that youtube um film of them watching it i think i think they they that's one of the areas where they um they said it wasn't that far away from reality i run but in 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 opposition to that the scene where they're all eating chinese uh takeaways with kind of tools apparently that never really happened but I just thought that was quite fun, so I put that. In. Well, I mean, did you find the era in general quite interesting to to write for? And you know, visiting the early eighties always seems like a fun time to to visit for a, for a show. I mean, it was kind of like you said before, you know, Clive Sinclair, that kind of last era of the eccentric British inventor. Mm. It seemed like yeah, it was quite I mean, a, well, a fun I mean, time. for me, for, for someone of my age, you know, as well, it was a kind of the they were the, they were my kind of salad days, really. You know, being that age and. I think that was generally just a sort of quite exciting time. I think just coming out of that decade of the seventies, although I look back on the seventies very fondly these days, 
But I think at the time, I was thinking the 80s would offer all sorts of kind of new opportunities. In a funny sort of way, these kind of slightly absurd, silly computers that were, were all part of that. You know, I think that, I think if you look back at them now, that we, we just laugh so much about what they were capable of doing, but they, but they, they did, they did sort of open a window to a whole world of opportunity, didn't they? Or, or a whole, a whole different way of seeing things. And I think they were part of an expectation that the world was going to change in, in, in some radical ways, you know, especially when you're that age and you're young and, you, and, and, and you, you, everything you're looking forward the whole time. You get to the age of right now and you, you, you have a slightly different perspective on things, don't you? But, um, but I think that was definitely part played into it, you know, and all the nice, yeah, the, the, the 80s is a good period to do a, 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 on TV, especially when you haven't got a great budget because you can kind of do it um, relatively inexpensively, unlike, say, even the 50s now is hard to do because, you know, um, but I think the 80s still doesn't look that unlike today. You know, then, and the clothes are very particular, and, and you know all those all those sort of stylings are kind of are kind of very are relatively easy to do, but but also very effective at the same time. But I was a go, yeah, it was a, it was it was a you know it was those are very much my formative years, and and these computers were definitely a, a huge part of it. I mean, I remember that you know that it didn't seem like it was going to be. I mean, of course, in one sense, it, it was a fad because these machines were quickly kind of um, superseded by other things but it felt like a fad but at the same time you realize now that it was the beginning of something that is utterly utterly universal and ubiquitous now and, and you or i you or i are effectively talking through equipment that if you it's 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 a it's a perhaps a tangential link but it's is distantly connected to those kind of machines which is quite an extraordinary thought really you know, those, you know, Sinclair and Acorn machines are really, you know, for a lot of people, they were the first introduction to computers. So it spawned a, a whole generation of computer programmers and graphic artists and all sorts. But I, I think what's so interesting as well about them is, you know, what we as a population do with these devices. And I think, you know, there's the, there's a slight, I mean, it's not melancholy, it's not the right word, but there's a slight poignancy in the idea of, you know, these guys putting these computer kits together for the enthusiast who wants to understand how these things work. And I had friends, you know, I, when I was growing up, I had friends who were those kind of guys and they understood that stuff and they were incredibly smart and technically minded. And yet it does, it, it, it very quickly becomes about the end user, about, you know, consumerism, about, about playing games, about entertainment. We, we sort of, and, and that is also something that, 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 that has exploded. And that's really what obviously computers are kind of like, I don't know what percentage of time people spend, Doing other things, but I imagine most of it's about entertainment. Most of it's about about pleasure. Without, and I, you know, I'm I'm a case in point. Someone who uses these machines without a clue how they work. I haven't got a clue how any of them work. And there is a sort of slight sadness in that 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 I think that more people don't understand it. And I think that that spirit of the very early days, you know, Chris Curry's idea of building, you know, the first I, I forget the name of it, but the, the was it the Mark 14 sort of pre ZX80? In fact, the ZX80 I think was just a kind of boxed up version of this computer, which which is the one that Chris Curry sort of started out with. The idea of something that would that would you would you would have as a computer would primarily be there to teach you how to understand computers. I think there's a sort of there's a sort of beauty in that idea, which which we've we've largely lost. I think as these phenomenal machines do ever more phenomenal things on our behalf. Um, our inability to kind of understand them is, you know, and obviously when uh, when the machines do rise up and take over, you know, we should we may we may come to rue that day. Um, you know, I'm the guy I'm the guy who says always says please and thank you to Alexa, which we've just got in our house recently <laughs> because I'm convinced that when the machines do rise up, the people who've been polite to them 
they probably they probably give them an easier ride. I don't know what you think. So. I for one welcome our new robot overlords. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Remember when I said thank you <laughs> and good morning. I think that point you made there about you know the fact that these machines weren't designed for what we generally ended up using them for. I think you captured that really well with Clive Sinclair's frustrations when you know he, he mentioned that people <laughs> are using it to play Jet Set Effing Willy yeah, in the script exactly. as well. I mean, exactly. I mean, did did you kind of see that when you were writing it then that this was like a frustration of his? Yes, totally. And I think that and I think that was um, that was very much a lovely element of the story as well, which is which is that he, you know, it is that hubristic thing that, as I mentioned earlier, that. That what, although although his his idea as 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 evinced in the the show or as 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 characterised in the show was to put a computer in every household in Britain, even if people had no idea what it was for, his downfall comes from wanting to be taken seriously, or wanting to produce a computer that was taken seriously by people. So I think there's a there's a sort of you know so in a way he, in a way that that is that very kind of tragic idea of someone who who has succeeded. But has succeeded on 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 the wrong terms in their own mind, hmm. and wants to be perceived in a different way. And I think there's something so universal about that idea. That's it, it's the human condition, that isn't it? Really, that you that you get what you want, but then you want something else. You want the other thing. And I think that I think that's what's so that's what's so uh, rich about that as a character idea. And I think I think in a way, you know, he, he I think the reality of the situation demonstrated that. I mean, it made a massive catastrophic business error didn't he really as did chris curry in the opposite direction and that's irrespective of the world of tech and the and the milieu and how clever they all are that's that's those universal human characteristics that that make it a good drama i think as opposed to just being a show about computers if you know what i mean Yes, you think like you know, Clive could have just kind of sat back and sold it as a game machine and raked in the millions, but he's trying to do stuff like you know the watch Absolutely. that you cover in there, and the C five that he you know obviously wasted <laughs> loads of money on. So, I mean, there is a lot of tragedy yeah, in, yeah. in amongst that success. Well, exactly, and I think that you know he had this he had this reputation which was deserved. I think for for you know it's all about elegance, it's all about presentation. In that sense, he was quite a, he was ahead of his time in that respect because he. He, he he was very design oriented and all of this miniaturization stuff and 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 you know and that that whole ethos is very interesting and and um and particular to him um but interestingly that that yes he 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 departed from his own path of success because he wanted to be viewed in in a way different to the way he was being viewed i find that very interesting and i think we all to some extent can can relate to that and you know i think it, it's a great curse i think it's not when I suffer from too much, I think, but it's a curse to want to be taken too seriously. Uh, and I can see from someone like Clive, someone like Clive Sinclair, with his, you know, with his, with his, with a certain degree of self-regard that he obviously has, that that's a difficult thing to live with. And, and, I, and I think it's a very telling and very interesting kind of character dynamic um, that sort of, you know, runs underneath all the kind of like the more fun stuff that the film, you know, does with him. I mean, he had, you know, he had a pretty notorious temper. Yeah. Um, which is something we we don't hold back on in the film. We see quite a bit of that, and uh, but also at the same time, I think as I said about the scene that the scene at the end, I think fundamentally there was a kind of he doesn't he, he didn't bear grudges, and he was a, he could be very loyal to his to people he respected and liked as well. So I think I think they try you know try as much as possible to, to sort of present a rounded kind of version of him. But you know, the the the, the film is primarily meant to be a kind of rollicking piece of entertainment and. And it, and it sort of developed this kind of second life with, with the good listeners of your podcast and others, you know, who just are, are, are huge fans of that world. So it's great that it's kind of had this kind of extended sort of 
sort of interest in 10 years on people still talk to me about it people in the business school come up to me and say they how much they love micromen i'm thinking really yeah. you know, like, <laughs> but it, it 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 chimes with it chimes with a lot of people particularly about particularly of my age i think who who, who lived through that that uh, excitement of, of that computer boom you know and playing endless games of uh, Space Invaders, whatever it was you played on the thing. I mean, yeah, were there any kind of stories or moments that you wanted to explore that you couldn't or that didn't make the final cut? Well, there is, a, yes, there was one in particular, and we did, this was, uh, we did remove something at Clive Sinclair's request, um, which, I, which I think was, was you know, perfectly fine, and, and he, didn't, he, he didn't want us to put it in, so we took it out. Um, and it was a scene about... He got divorced from his wife at, at, during this during the period of the story, and um, and just about the only thing that I could remember ever being able to do on a spectrum was that thing where um, you put in ten something something, and then you put in twenty go to ten, and it would scroll down the screen. Yeah, remember that's that. Yeah, ring a bell. Is that right? That, that's you know, and so I had a scene where where um, you know it was a little it was a bit cheeky. It was a little scene where his wife asked Clive for a divorce by doing that, basically. Wow. And so as green as I want. And uh, I thought it was just a bit of fun, really. But um, he did ask he did ask us that we didn't put that in. So we took that out. And it wasn't, the film wasn't affected by that. You know? So, uh, um, but I think, you know, the, the, just to demonstrate the fact that we, we are sensitive to people's kind of, you know, feelings about that kind of thing. And, um, and uh, I was, we were, there, was no, there was no great loss to the show. That didn't happen. But... Uh, uh, but he did, yeah. They did get. I mean, I think all the main protagonists got it. Were, were given it, were shown it, and I mean, Chris Curry claims in that YouTube video that he's ne- he'd never seen the film until that point, um, and you can make of that what you will. But um, um, I think he certainly was shown a script before it was shot, and uh, so everyone, everyone had. And I think Herman, I do remember Herman Hauser reading Herman Hauser somewhere saying the reason why Clive Sinclair declared himself not to be a fan of the film was because it kind of presented him as he actually was. I'll leave that remark hanging in the air. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So I did read that, you know, that mainly from the Acorn sign side of it, you know, that they, they're all quite a big fan of it. That they, they loved it and they thought it was actually quite accurate. But yeah, I did read that after that Clive wasn't a fan of it. Did he get to see it before it went out though? And did he give you any feedback or Well he did say yes. He was he was he was given a he was given a copy to watch before it was broadcast and, and so he did have the he did have a sort of right of reply, if you like, and asked for that scene to come out. I mean, I think there's I think that the smart thing you know, I think he more or less did this, and I certainly when I when I worked on a film about Mrs. Thatcher, obviously you contact the you contact the estate, and you, I think no, I'm sorry, Mrs. Thatcher was still alive, Lady Thatcher was still alive when the film was 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 aired. So we contacted her office, and we said we're going to do this film, and I think you know actually, you know these films come and go, and it's quite interesting that Mike Rowan's had this kind of extra life because because most cases it's all, you know, there's a film about you gets made, maybe it's a little bit critical or takes a poke at you. And a week later, it's forgotten, you know. Yeah. Um, so the smart thing to do is to let it is to is to just just let it happen because in the long term, it doesn't really amount to very much. And I'm you know as the as the guy who wrote the thing, I'm 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 fully conscious of that as well. Um, so I don't think I don't think there was uh, there was there was too much trouble uh, over it. I think I think and I think again I think when you when you see this sort of the tone of it, I mean you know it's it, it's not a film that was designed to be taken terribly seriously. Um, it was entertaining. We've got our tub in our cheek, quite evidently, and I think, I think that always helps in these circumstances because, you know, unless you, uh, it, it's sort of potentially a bit of an own goal to be too critical of something like Micromen because there's a danger you look a bit petty. I think, yeah, <laughs> because it's not, it's it, it's not a kind of, um, 
it's not intended to be a searing indictment of anything or anybody. It's just a really, it's just trying to tap into that kind of moment. Well, did you have a preference over Sinclair or Acorn? Like, which side you thought should have won the battle when writing? Um, not, no, not really, not really. I think, I think that one of the great things about the story is that you can see it from both sides. And I suppose, I suppose, at the, at the root of the story is is the is the the break up between Chris Curry and, and Clive Sinclair, which I think you could you would probably look at sort of objectively and say, well, it didn't seem like Clive Sinclair was. He didn't. I don't think he he came out of that smelling of roses when this guy who worked for him for so long and was so devoted to him, uh, you know, they'd fallen out over some some you know work thing. That I suppose that's one point I'd make. But at the same time. I think Chris Curry sort of uh, in the film anyway. The, the, the Chris Curry character's uh, kind of desire to trump uh, Sinclair is his sort of Achilles' heel as well. So you know, I think in a way there is a nice balance on either side of the story between them, and I think that kind of parallel that parallel story of of, of one company that's a serious computer company trying to get popular and a popular computer company trying to get serious doing it to each other it is. And again, I mean, there's a scene in the film where Chris Curry. Is, is looking at three pieces of advertising, isn't he, for his uh, his computer towards the end of the story, and he did, and he pointedly picks on the one that's knocking Sinclair. Yeah, and and I think in a way you sort of that to my mind that certainly balances the kind of um, that balances how you might feel about the kind of the, the, the earlier breakup to some extent. Uh, and you, ca- you capture the misfortune there as well with the electron that was actually a good machine, but the timing was just wrong with it too. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's a huge part of of. The, the, I think that's true, but they, but they, the, if I remember correctly, there was a, they, they overreached enormously, and they, and they tried to get into the American market, didn't they? I think that was yeah. their big, in reality, that was their big, big mistake. Um, but I suppose you ha- they have to expand because that, because the British market's only ever going to be so big. I understand that, but it was just that idea that the whole, that the whole bottom fell out of the computer market altogether. And I suppose looking in hindsight, when you look at those machines and what they could do. That was that felt sort of that that felt kind of inevitable somehow, didn't it? I don't know that the machines couldn't really couldn't really move quickly enough for the for, for for the market, and I suppose their limitations were kind of cruelly exposed, you know. Well, I think it captured the look of that era really well. As we only saw the old like the, the shots of how W. H. Smith used to look, and then yeah. there was that section where they they mixed in the old footage of the BBC Micro Live program from the early eighties. Yes, and then seamlessly cut it in with like you know the, the characters. Did yeah. they recreate the sets for that then, and was that a challenge to make it appear seamless? I think it was probably less of a challenge than I think because it, because in that case it was a TV studio, so I guess it, I guess it didn't look too difficult. I mean, yeah, it was pretty. It was all pretty skillfully done actually. I mean, I one one comment I'd make about the film is that. That I think when I watch it again now, I think there was probably a slight over reliance on, on kind of documentary footage and the money program and stuff. I think there's a, I think we had some of that in the script, but I think there was a bit more of it ended up in the show than I, than I felt was 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 helpful. But because um, I think I think this is sometimes the danger that it jars you out of the drama. You know, they, they actually, it's, it, if you can, if the, the less of that stuff you use, the better. But I thought that that was that was a, you know, and and you know, um, Sophie and uh, Steve Fibber were, were doing that at the time. They were basically sort of like gluing these things together while they were broadcasting live probably in those days you know so all that sense of excitement and as i said that seat of the pan stuff is great but i think in terms of i mean as i said before i mean uh these bbc4 uh shows were great there was a lot of very good ones that came out when when they i suppose they must have stopped them about seven or eight years ago but there was a little kind of um this great burst of creativity around them and, and a lot of them were done for very very small budgets so, um, so actually, in actual fact, it's, you know, the, the look of it is is a, is a great testament to the skill of 
of the people on the production who uh, who who are invariably the unsung heroes of these shows. To be honest with you, you know, people like me and directors and you know, cast get a lot of the sort of the kudos and everything. But but the people who make these make these effectively make them. You know, use that word with a capital M. Make the shows are, are the are the unsung heroes. You know, and I think I think Microman is is a, is a real case in point. Not well, obviously, you know, it's um been over a decade now 11 years ago since it came out and it's obviously become a, a cult classic now really hasn't it I mean, are you kind of surprised at that then the level of interest it still has um i, I suppose i'm on overall i'm surprised i always figured that it would that it would appeal very strongly to um to a you know to a a a, a coterie of 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 tech fiends if that's the right word but i also i also i didn't remember thinking at the time you know this is this this is a real hostage to fortune because these people really know what they're talking about and i haven't got a clue so you know and if 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 we make mistakes here they're they're going to let us know about it which has definitely been the case um but all power to their elbow i think it's great and i think it's i think that it's great to have been involved in something has struck such a chord with so many people, you know, and, you know, it doesn't often happen, actually. I mean, you, you know, as I say, the, the, this business I work in, one of the great things, the, the greatest thing about it and the most terrible thing about it is the same thing, which is you've spent two years working on a show in some cases, and then it's it goes out and it's forgotten about the next day because there's something else coming along that, that that's on at nine o'clock the following night, if you know what I mean. Whereas this thing has just sort of had a life of its own and out, out, outlived its kind of, very modest kind of beginnings and uh, and it's very modest genesis into something that's made and you know the fact that it's made a lot of people happy and they've enjoyed it and hopefully in some cases it's 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 turned people on to to you know to the world of retro tech and the shows like yours well it, that's that's incredibly incredibly satisfying to think of you know and obviously, there's that um, I imagine unofficial version of it on YouTube that people can check out as well anytime. I they want. I, I, I couldn't possibly comment. on that. <laughs> And the video of uh, Chris Curry, Steve Ferber, and Herman Hauser watching it on the 10th anniversary. I'll put those in our show notes if people want to check them out. I mean, all right, great, yeah. personally, have you got any plans to do any more like kind of technology stories in the future? Do you think, or is that um, something you'll revisit? I can't say that there are any in the in the uh, near future that I that I that I can see coming over the the hill. I mean, I, I'm I'm interested in. You know, I, I like the idea of sort of of sort of science fiction of a of a slightly more kind of social uh, kind of type. You know, I I think that um, there's been an enormous amount of stuff about artificial intelligence and robots, and I, to my mind, that's that market's been a bit flooded. You know, um, yeah. But I think there is some. You know, I think Black Mirror is an interesting show. I think sometimes that when I when the, that some of the the technical questions that that poses can be very intriguing. I think that it, I think the tendency now is to think of it as a problem, isn't it, rather than as a solution so i suppose yeah. so much of it's dystopian it would be quite nice to find um to find something that perhaps shows it in a slightly more positive positive light and i know that i know that some i mean i, I don't know if you've i haven't watched it personally there's a show is it called halt and catch fire yes which, i watched the whole thing actually sort of an, 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 an is it fair to call it an american micromen it's probably not um, uh, yeah well, it's just kind of this group of people who invent everything from the co- personal computer to the internet to the f- right. to the mobile phone but right. yeah it, it is a good watch so it's slightly bigger in scale than micromen yeah. yeah so i haven't i haven't I, so obviously that's kind of been done and i think that uh, uh, even in its own way i suppose something like stranger things has a, obviously has that 80s whiff about it that we that we try to, to to do so yeah i think i think that i that i'm interested in how this stuff affects people socially i mean i you know as a father of two teenage kids i mean i I don't need much reminding of that every day of my life they've got their faces you know basically glued to a screen of some description but i i I think you know i i try too hard i try 
not to be too downbeat about tech. You know, I try to see the positive, although I find myself kind of, as I get a bit older, sort of slightly retreating from it at the same time, you know. And it's funny with this situation that we're all in at the moment where, in a way, when there's so much less traffic around and you can hear the the birds singing in the trees outside the house, that you sort of think back to those days before these machines existed and what my young my earlier childhood was like you know um and how much things have changed i mean you know i was thinking about you know my father uh who's uh he lived from 1929 to about two three years ago just thinking about the changes that someone like him has seen in his lifetime absolutely extraordinary you know well if you look at microman that was only 35 years ago right? it's nothing yeah. in terms of human history but it, it just yeah. feels like stuff's come on so fast and you've got computers with one one megabyte, one one kilobyte of memory or something, whatever it is, <laughs> compared to what we have now, and everyone's everyone's clapping their hands in amazement at that. You know, it's it's extraordinary. But yes, I think I think in a way, I think I think that it, it's interesting writing. Right, you know, generally speaking, it's quite interesting. It's quite I quite like writing period stuff, and without being flippant about it, one of the great things about writing period drama is that there are no mobile phones, because characters have to interact with each other, you know, face to face. And that's actually inherently more dramatic than two people talking on a mobile phone, which is, of course, how we all communicate now. So, of course, it re- it's reflected in the drama. But I think it's actually a bit of a problem for scriptwriters because it, it, it means that so much, so much interaction that we have as characters in everyday life is, is done through these machines. And actually, there's so, there's so much less that people can do or have to do independently of that. And so, the, so it's actually, in, a, in an odd sort of way, it's actually harder to tell good stories set now than I think it is to tell stories set in the past that, are, that, are, that are, have more inherent dramatic quality. And that may, that maybe, I don't know if that makes any sense. but Yeah, but, I guess there's it, only so many ways you can shoot a, a text message conversation and make it yeah, more dramatic. <laughs> yeah, and it becomes yeah. a sort of, it's become such a kind of standard thing. And, and uh, I mean, you know, I, I, it's interesting how when, I don't know if you watched the Dracula that was on over Christmas, I thought that, you know, the episode where it goes to the present day and he's on a mobile phone was infinitely the weakest episode. Maybe mm-hmm. not the only reason for that. But actually, it just has a sort of slightly, has a diluting effect on, on drama in a curious sort of way. There's so many things can be done so easily because of these marvellous inventions that we all have at our disposal. It actually makes drama a bit more difficult. Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure to get your stories. Um, like I said, you know, I, I can watch Micromen over and over again and never get bored of it. And for any of our listeners outside the UK who may not have checked it out, we'll, of course, link it up. Thank you so much for coming on and being our guest this week and uh, giving us those stories, Tony. It's a pleasure. Thank, thank you for asking. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. <laughs>